the road that leads me to the Lamb. I need Thee, oh, I need Thee. Every hour I need Thee, oh, bless me now, my Savior. table. In just a moment, the communion trays will be passed. There will be two cups stacked together. One holds the bread and the other the juice. Hold them until all have been served and we will take communion together. This semester, the university students have been discussing and learning about the beauty of being God's beloved children. One of our encouragements to the students is to spend time each day practicing to see themselves as God's chosen. Sometimes the pacing of our days drives that to be more of a challenge. But when we encourage one another to slow down and to live into experiencing the message of his divine love, those moments can remind us of how blessed we are. There's not a better time during the week than right now for us to take that time and think while we share communion and it gives us a chance to look around and to see God's beloved children here together this morning. And it gives us a chance to bask in that unfailing love. So to the university students that have been learning together about God's amazing love and to each of you, all of Highland, our encouragement to you this morning is to know each and every one of you are God's beloved. Highland Church has a great way of helping us feel that when we come to the table. When we come to this place each week, there are beautiful tables prepared for us. Coffee, lunch, um, we're good at showing one another a welcome to the table. So I hope you feel that this morning. So the gospel writer Mark demonstrates in his narrative right at the beginning the urgency that Jesus portrays through his entire ministry. After noting John the Baptist's role, which is getting everybody's attention and then pointing it straight to Jesus, the voice we hear next is the one that rips heaven open and declares over Jesus, you are my son the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. While Jesus is still literally wet behind the ears, right, from his own baptism. Jesus was entering a new space 
in his life, a new rhythm of receiving strength and pouring that out. Whatever space we find ourselves in today, a new space, familiar space, or a mundane old space, we join one another around a table that exists because of Christ's passion, Jesus' own love to share the love of God and our belonging with us in our intended and chosen seats around this table, a table that represents the unity of a family among differences that only Christ can make real. There is a place prepared for all of us at this eternal table. Servers, please come forward at this time. Refiner's fire, my heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be. Church, pray with me. Jesus, thank you for giving your body so that we can be a body that is your beloved. Jesus, thank you for taking the cup placed before you so that we can drink deeply of your presence in that of one another and look forward to knowing you more and more fully. Amen. The body of Christ. And the blood of Christ. The Lord be with you.
A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood, a mortal is prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. Jesus, it is He, Lord Sabbath, His name, from age to age the same, and He must win the of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall Good morning, church. My name is Reed Hillen. If we haven't met yet, I am one of our student ministers. I work with our 6th through 12th graders, and it is very good to see you today. Um, see some familiar faces out there. Made it up early this morning. Nice job for our students that made it here. Uh, it's my distinct honor to invite our friends from three-year-olds through kindergarten to his kids to see Miss Ashley and her team. They are ready for you uh, right out these doors in the south foyer. Uh, if you haven't served in his kids before, I, hearing the gospel in that context with our young friends is one of the most beautiful things you'll ever do. So if there's ever a Sunday where you're like, ah, maybe I should try, maybe I should serve in a different way today, you'll see, join that. It's beautiful. Um, if you're looking to connect, there are people wearing badges such as this, and you can find one of us and ask us, uh, which might be awkward. Um, and so it's like, do I really want to go shoulder tap somebody and ask them a question? If you're in that place, great. There are online connect cards you can fill out, or you can fill out a connect card in the chair somewhere around you. There should be connect cards that you can drop in baskets as well. Or, here's a better option. Today after second service, there is a connect lunch. So if you want to come to the connections lunch and hear about what's happening and the way that we are working to restore Highland, to restore Abilene, and restore the world, we would love to see you there and get you connected that way. Um, 
There are three ways to give. Text to give. Give online. You can give with cash or check in the back. We are so blessed to see you today. And uh, praise God for our time together. I just want to call your attention to something that we're asking for feedback. Um, we love to hear the voice of the church. And during certain holidays in, in the summer, for past several summers, our rhythm has been to have a blended service, both a cappella and instrumental in the same service. So we're, we're looking for some feedback from you, those who attended the blended service through the summer. So there's a QR code code on the screen. And if <laughs> it took me a long time to realize, you can actually hold your phone up, capture that right now. You don't have to go find it somewhere else. You can get it here. So you can either use your smartphone to be smart and take you to the survey, or you can be smart yourself and go out to the Welcome Center just outside to your right in the atrium, and there are paper copies there and a place to, to return those. So please take the time uh, to give us your feedback, and we will share that information, <clears throat> information with you as you go further. Uh, now, I would like to ask you to stand. There'll be a short bumper, but also then you'll be standing for the reading of the word. This morning, I'll be reading from Galatians 5, 16 through 25. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. I had this moment in second service yesterday that I want to share, or last Sunday, I want to share with you. I uh, Normally, we preach first, and then... I take my notes, which are very valuable to me because I have the memory of a goldfish, and uh, I set them over on the producer's table, and I came back at the beginning of second, and I organized them to make sure they were in the right order, and all, everything looked good. And then when I came up in, uh, for the time of the sermon, there were no notes there, which is kind of like my worst nightmare. And in second service, I had this moment where I turned the, whoops, uh, turned the music stand around, and there was nothing there. Uh, and my mind went to a vapor lock, and Jeff, he tears across the way to the office to grab my laptop, and uh, Michael runs back to where we just happened to have a, a copy of the sermon back in the crow's nest, and my wife brings up a copy of uh, Gail Donaghy's notes. Uh, she was in first, and she stayed for second, and uh, and the notes came first, and I thought the notes are going to be very valuable, except it was more of a commentary and not actual, like, an outline of my sermon. There were a lot of things in there about Calvin and how great he is, but... So today, brothers and sisters, I have my notes, and if I need a backup, I've got that. If I need a second backup, i got it. But this is how scarring this is to me. I mean, worst case scenario, I've got the piece right here. All right? Here it is. So three sets of notes. I'm good. We're good. Here we go. Um, 
But what was amazing to me, and it should not have surprised me at all, is everybody in the room was for that moment. Janet Beck yells out, just ad lib. She's an actor. Uh, You know, just wing it. Um, People that saw my anxiety and came up to me later in the week and said, man, I'm sorry. Um, And despite the fact that that is probably the worst sermon open I will ever experience and I never want to experience again, uh, I'm grateful for this community that is it does not backbite. It doesn't find a quick reason to condemn. It loves and supports and nurtures and cares. I'm grateful that my family and I are in this place. I'm going to pray, begin the sermon today by praying the prayer of confession that we all said last week. Will you join me in prayer? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And Father, now as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, and it's together that the church says, amen. So we're in this series called Deliver Us, and we're talking about the three enemies of the soul, the devil, the flesh, and the world. And I've been getting a lot of positive feedback on this series, which is good. Things like, we like the sermon series. That is good. I like it too. But I think there's a few reasons for this reaction. I I think, for one, the text of the Bible is useful, and it's faithful, and it's practical, and it makes sense. The Bible is not hard to understand. You can easily relate to concepts like temptation, lies, and deceit designed to draw us away from God. This series is based on a book called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer, and it's a really good book. Um, And it's easily presented in an understandable way. But I think the third reason why people I'm getting feedback about this sermon series is we're talking about something that we don't often talk about. We don't often talk about sin and evil or that kind of dark spiritual side of our lives. We don't talk, often talk about the unseen or maybe just the unnoticed things in our lives that can cause us to stumble or struggle in, our fo- in following Jesus. We're bringing these things to light in our own lives, and what we're experiencing is freedom. I also have to note that there's like weird stuff that's been happening in the last five weeks. Strange, it's kind of spooky things, notes that disappear, sudden personal health questions, all sorts of things that are just kind of coming up at an inopportune time. We're doing some soul work together. It's practical, and it's helping our walk with Christ. Specifically, what we're doing, uh, Paul advises in regard to how to manage the Spirit of God that now lives in everyone who is Christ and the desires of the flesh that you now wrestle with. And last week, we were in Romans chapter 8, and we, 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 we looked at the way that we live by the Spirit and to not be controlled by the desires of the flesh, but to feed the Spirit and starve the flesh, kind of like you feed a cold and starve a fever. And by starve, what we're talking about is is the disciplines, the Christian disciplines, spiritual practices that allow us to kind of tame, to put these God-given functional helpful desires in their proper place so that they don't take over. Which is kind of like if you've ever tried to plant a garden or even just a flower bed. And if you lived very long in West Texas, then you know that there are all kinds of incredible plants that grow up in this soil, and they all tend to have stickers. I don't know why that is. It's just the way it is. And so if you want to create a space for those less endurant plants that need more water and better sunlight and aren't just weeds, then you have to prepare that soil. And one of the ways that you must prepare that soil, whether it's trying to grow carrots or tomatoes or daffodils, is that you have to put down weed paper first. 
You have to put down weed paper so that you can choke out the weeds. And you do, all you do is you just plant, you cut little holes in that weed paper uh, where the, your plants that you want to grow up uh, can grow, but everything else gets choked from sunlight and they don't kill your plants. And then on top of the weed paper, you need to put mulch or rocks or something to further stunt the growth of those weeds. And then you, if you're really serious about this, you set up a drip sprinkler system so that the only water that comes into that area is the plants that you want getting water, but not the weeds. And even if you do all of these things, there is still a very good chance, because of the nature of the weeds in West Texas, that you're just still going to get a mess. Especially if you do what I do, which is set all that up, and then just like walk away for two months. It takes attention. Continual, habitual attention. We heard in Rome, Paul in Romans 8 advised Christians who live to live by the Spirit to subdue the flesh and the nature of the Spirit um, and nurture the Spirit. And he talks about this in other letters, which we have in the New Testament as well. Galatians 5, which you heard read today. And in Galatians 5, what Paul encourages us to do is to crucify the passions of the flesh. Not only kill them, but make a spectacle of them. And we have to remember when Paul is talking about the flesh this way, Paul is condemning the disordered desires, and not necessarily desire itself, because there's a difference between natural instincts of our bodies and the disordered desires. And notice the things that he mentions are in the acts of the flesh, which are kind of the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, are misuses of good and healthy desires for things like food and sex and control, and it goes on. For instance, he talks about sexual immorality and impurity and orgies, and you didn't think you'd heard that word this morning, but here we go. Those are sex out of its proper place. Debauchery or drunkenness is, is food or pleasure out of its proper place. Idolatry, witchcraft is desire for control out of its proper place. And so it goes on and on. Paul's concern is for the disordered desires in our lives. The way that we try to seize control out of a trusting relationship with God to manage things that we cannot manage by ourselves. So Scripture, in effect, says we need the, the weed paper over these disordered desires if we, want, if we don't want them to grow and take over our lives. And we need to water and cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. And I mentioned this at the end of last sermon. We're going to spend a little more time on it today. The way that we cultivate the Spirit in our lives, one of the ways we can do this is the two disciplines that help us are fasting and confession. Uh, we're going to talk about more about that in just a minute, but I want to say first what this does not mean. What this does not mean is some sort of like disembodied Gnostic sense that the body is bad and the spirit is good. And it's easy to jump to that conclusion while reading passages like these, but it's actually more of a secular view than it is a biblical one. Popular wisdom in the ancient world said the material realm was bad, evil, corrupt, but the spiritual realm was good. The Greek philosopher Plato and the Gnostic philosophy during Jesus and Paul's time, the Manichaeism in the third century and all belong, all held that the goal of life was to escape the body and unite with the God or the gods and spirit. And so if you think about that, and you think that's your worldview, how would you feel coming across the gospel's claim that the one true God became flesh and lived among us? It would be scandalous. The idea that the one true God was born as a baby? No. The one, uh, that the one true God was crucified on the cross? No. The physical resurrection of the body of Jesus? Absolutely not. Because they would think, surely God would not demean himself by so taking on the filthy, shameful form. The Gnostics, which were a part of kind of Christian thinking for the first five or six centuries, although you still see it in different places at different times, they would think, surely God would not demean himself by so taking on our filthy, shameful form. Uh, the Gnostics said Jesus only appeared to have been crucified or physically resurrected. That's the only way they could make it work in their minds because they thought the Spirit was so much better 
than the body. And the result of this dualism of body bad, spiritual good, spirit is good worldview was a low view of the body. The body is just a body, they might think. It's just a vehicle that my spirit pilots, and so it's not actually my true self, which led to justifying all kinds of things because it was just the flesh. Immorality, abuse, hedonism, etc., but that's not a biblical view. Scripture tells us that God created the world and pronounced it good, that God thinks flesh and matter are good. He created men and women's bodies. With his own hands, he shaped us and declared them to be very good. And there's this unbreakable connection between your body and your spirit. They influence one another. Your, Your mind can rewire your brain and your brain's chemistry can hurt your mind. And so we believe in a physical resurrection of the body like Jesus was. That heaven is not a hologram. Heaven is going to be a lot more physical than we think. And so the enemies of the soul, the devil, the flesh, the world, attack us on a spiritual level. But it most certainly impacts our physical bodies and our daily lives. And I think most of us, if you were to press us with kind of our gut theology live pretty close to that dualism today. That the only thing that matters is what you think. And that deep down in your soul personhood you have, your body and your biology is merely incidental. Former agnostic Dr. Nancy Percy says that this low view of the body is at the foundation of social issues and practices like three-day benders on the weekends or euthanasia of sex trafficking of hookup culture and the list just goes on and on and on because if your body really doesn't matter then what you do with it on the weekend doesn't matter either but trying to separate the body from the spirit or the soul of the person is problematic in our culture and it's problematic in our faith the apostle paul The same guy who says, crucify the desires of the flesh and walk in step with the Spirit also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, all things are permitted for me, and there he's quoting a philosopher, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permitted for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the the stomach and the stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Therefore, shun sexual immorality. Every sin that a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And this is kind of like an extended uh, rabbit trail. But it's important to understand how much the Christian worldview actually depends on believing that the body and the spirit are intertwined. While so much of secular philosophy depends on the belief that the body and the spirit or the body and the person are completely separate. We're not saying disregard the, uh, the desires of the body. We're saying put them in the proper place. When they become disordered desires and we are controlled by our flesh, that's when we need to act. So the two embodied practices that help us live in accordance with God's spirit and not the flesh are fasting and confession. And the practice of fasting is to intentionally reduce or eliminate food intake for a certain time and purpose. And when you do this, and I hope I challenged you to do this last week, I said just skip one meal. Just skip one meal and, and see what happens. Just notice what happens to your body. Um, because it connects what I'm saying to you with your body, personally, not just with your mind. And it'll give you a concrete experience that makes you aware of how much your desires try to control us. And it will give you practice taming your appetites. It'll give you experience telling your body, no, you don't get what you want. And when you have, when you develop that muscle and that muscle becomes stronger in your body and in your mind, you're going to be able to resist temptation more fully. 
I mean, after all, Jesus fasted and his disciples fasted and the early church fasted, especially when they were making big decisions, they entered a season called prayer and fasting. And Christians throughout centuries have fasted. In fact, Christians not fasting is actually a relatively recent shift and it would make those that came before us question our fidelity. Throughout Christian history, Christians fasted twice a week, every Wednesday and Friday. And many Christians in the Orthodox Church still observe these weekly fasts. I found it interesting, I discovered that this week, I didn't know this before, but the early Christians in the daylight hours during the 40 days of Lent, they would fast. And you're probably familiar with this practice because it's what Muslims do during Ramadan, but actually Muslims adapted that practice from Christians that were doing it first. Even though Jesus fasted and the early church fasted, and Jesus gives instructions when you fast, not if you fast, it has become a discipline that many Christians have ruled out. And I wonder if that's because we're a little more Gnostic than we like to admit we are. You know, that kind of body bad, spirit good, so let's do what we want with our bodies. That faith exists mainly in the immaterial thought of and the world and the body are not important. But Richard Foster says that besides being an intentional move um, we make to be more connected to God, fasting reveals the things that control us. For example, if in your one meal skip, one meal fast this week, you found yourself becoming angry, you might have just thought, well, I'm just hangry, right? It's just my blood sugar dipping low, and that may be true. But fasting is not creating your anger. Fasting is exposing it. And it reminds us that we are sustained by God and not by food. People often think that in the temptation of Jesus, that he's fasted for 40 days in the desert, that Jesus is at his weakest. But most scholars point out, if fasting helps us submit our disordered desires of the flesh to the will of God, that actually when the devil met Jesus, it was when Jesus would have his strongest. And if you remember at the end of the story in Matthew, it ends with, the devil went away until a more opportune time. When Jesus was theoretically not so centered on the will of God. Fasting helps us keep a balance in our life. It helps us put things in our proper place. So last week I suggested you give fasting a try. And I think you hope you notice it takes some getting used to. It is something that you kind of have to practice as, as a habit. You can't just do it once or twice and say, well, yeah, I've done that. Now I can move on. And fasting from food is a particularly helpful practice, but you can also take a, an intentional fast from anything. Having a ruling or driving power in your life, whether that's shopping or, or drinking or social media or screen time. If it, if it contributes to being more in control of your urges than rather having control of you, then fasting is a necessary praxis. The other aspect is confession. There is power in confessing our sins, not only to God, but to one another, and this is commanded in Scripture. John's version of the flesh spirit dichotomy, he, when he talks about this, he talks about light and darkness in that language, that Jesus is the light of the world, and in him is no darkness at all, and we walk in the light as he is in the light. And so in John 1, chapter, 1 John 1, chapter 9, or excuse me, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. I think the most powerful example of this in my own lifetime was listening to Stormit when he was so clear and upfront about his own racism. And, and this is so true. If you go to his, his Twitter profile, he still has in his identity the little tagline that he puts on this recovering racist. He was, he was being confessional upfront from the very beginning that there's parts of his life that still needed redemption. I thought that was a powerful example of public confession. 
Confession is letting truth with a capital T come to the surface, exposing any hidden sin and darkness in our souls. And I think most of us, our only experience, especially if you grew up Church of Christ or if you grew up evangelical in general, would be thinking that confessing is somehow like coming down to the front of the church on Sunday mornings uh, at the invitation song. And I think probably in my experience growing up, once or twice a year, that invitation song was for a 13-year-old child or 12-year-old child who was ready to be baptized. Uh, They would come forward. But every other time anyone else came forward, it was because they were confessing sin. And an elder or a pastor would minister, would sit next to them and talk to them for a minute. And then then we would all pray over them. And man, I, I think that there are probably healthier models than the one I grew up with. But I also think that in confession, sometimes we, we put an overemphasis on sex. I think we, we might hold that sin, and maybe partially so because of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We hold that sin in, in a special regard. Uh, Tim Keller, one of my favorite preachers and a pastor in New York for many, many years, he, he remarked one time that hundreds of people came to his office to confess things, seeking help and seeking counsel and, and what's the way to go. But never one confessed the sin of greed in cosmopolitan New York City. Uh, and we, we hold this idea that you only come to the front if you're really in trouble And if you didn't confess before you died, you'd go to hell. And I think that's an unhealthy perspective. I think confession can begin in a million different ways. In our conversations this week on staff, we talked about one person who who said that a friend of hers had a wailing wall at her ranch just outside of town. And it was just this kind of old concrete wall that had been there forever, but the woman had put a a couple of buckets of old, like, Goodwill China next to the wall. And, And you were allowed, you could come over to their house, and you could go over to their wailing wall and just pick up pieces of of China, of plates and bowls and cups, and just smash them against the wall. Throw them against the wall. Break the China. And in that moment of this personal catharsis, you, you experienced something. You were able to say words that you never spoke before to God. It was just kind of this physical way of getting out what was in you. And maybe there is something to breaking some plates. Maybe we need physical ways, embodied ways, to learn how to do confession. And I think confession is scary, whether it's before God or anybody else, because it is incredibly vulnerable. And and, and I think there's a deep fear because it feels like God may abandon you or or someone else when you tell them who you truly are or what you did or what what happened, that, that they may reject you. But let me assure you that God will never walk away. And confession doesn't drive a wedge between you and God. Actually, what it does is it reconnects intimacy. It unwinds the sin. I mean, you still have to deal with the consequences of it, right? The resurrection means that you still may have to walk through the valley of death. But your confession is a privilege, not an obligation. I want to tell you the truth. In my life, the times when I've had things that I've held between myself and someone else, if it's my, my spouse or, so, or my kids or someone I work with, you know what I think happened to my notes yesterday, or last Sunday? I think somebody put their notebook on top of my notes and scooped them up. And I think what happened is after the first 90 seconds of the sermon, they realized what they did. And I bet you dollars to donuts, it's either an elder or a person I work with, and they're never going to tell me. They're taking that secret to their grave. They're never going to come up and say, oh yeah, sorry, it was me. Um, and I don't know who it is. I don't. I, I, 
I truly don't. Um, and I, I don't care anymore. Uh, it took me a couple days. But, <laughs> um, but that person's going to feel it. And they're going to they're gonna see me, and, uh, you know, eventually it won't be a big deal, because who cares? It's just sermon notes. It worked out fine. But they're going to hold it. And it's going to be a wedge. And it's, it's easy to talk about it when it's sermon notes. And so it feels like when we're talking to each other that if I reveal myself, I'm going to get rejected. But the truth is, you're not yourself. The truth is, you're just a hypocrite pretending to be something you're not. And I would, I would wager dollars to donuts that the intimacy that you experience after confession, even if it has consequences, will set you free. It will set you free from the power of sin and death. It will set you free from walking in darkness. So confession actually leads to intimacy. It unwinds sin. So here's my advice. This week, I want you to practice confession. I want you to find a trusted group or a friend. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's not. But don't start down at the, at the, the core, because that may be just be too intimidating and too scary for you. And, and beginning right at the, at the core of things may be too much. That, that may be too far. But my guess is there is like a couple of, of rings that exist that lead you to a place of unhealth. It may be that you stay up too late at night, and when you stay up at li- too late at night, you begin to make bad choices. Bad choices regarding food or what your eyes wander to or what you do with your time, and, and, and that's, that's where you get in trouble. And if it's the case where you stay up too late, that's the, kind of the first bad decision, but it kind of cascades to other bad decisions, then talk about that first decision. Stay at the outer ring. You don't have to go right to the heart of the matter at first if you don't have the emotional intimacy to support that kind of confession. Be smart about what you're doing. But maybe start at that outer ring. Maybe think about how with someone else or someone that you love and trust, how are your relationships going? The relational, the physical, the mental, and the spiritual. How are those categories going in your life? And just talk about them. And stay, stay at the outer ring. You don't have to go all the way in. I found that if I go to bed earlier, I make better choices, not only that night, but the next day. I found if I'm less tired, then I eat better. And when I eat better, I exercise better. And when I exercise better, my mental health is better. And when my mental health is better, I'm more a kind person. And so if I want to avoid being cruel or impatient or nasty. The solution that maybe by the time I'm in that situation, it's too late. Maybe I just need to go to bed earlier the next night, the night before. So I wonder if you can do that as a small group. Because like Tim Keller said, I think the, the hardest part of confessing these sins is when the outward sign of the sin looks like success in our culture. Keller had never had anyone come into his Manhattan, lower Manhattan church office and confess the sin of greed. Because in that neighborhood, greed is about the only thing you can see. But I wonder what it looks like when we as a people begin to turn our hearts and our minds to be open to the intimacy with God. When we begin the work of unwinding sin, of telling our desires no, and realigning ourselves to the good work of God's grace. Would you please stand for our benediction? Uh, before before I, I want to send us today, I want to offer one quick word. Um, Matt Pinson has been on staff here for 
uh, the last 12 years. And if you haven't met Matt, it's because he works in the back. He works behind the scenes. He does all of our videos and all of our interviews, all of the bumpers that happen before the sermon. Everything that comes out on our printed media goes through Matt's office to make sure that it's what we need to say and in the right way. And if you've, if you've spent any time with Matt at all, you know that Matt is a storyteller. And that probably he, more than anyone else I've ever met, is able to take somebody's um, disordered ideas and shape them into a narrative that anyone can understand. Uh, I am grateful for Matt. Uh, More importantly than his skill at his task was the way that he functioned on our staff. Uh, Matt was kind of one of our, the heart of our staff. He, he, he moved um, and he, in meetings, and he would always bring us to ask the question about the people who are on the outside. How would people in our neighborhood hear this conversation? How do those that don't know about Jesus hear that conversation? He would always force us to ask the question of look for those who are not being seen and force us to look at them. Uh, Matt is uh, taking a job at ACU, and we are really bummed that he is leaving um, but I'm kind of happy in one way. Matt, for the last 12 years, has been back in a, in a, at a closet room manning our live stream every Sunday, and now um, he gets to sit for the first time in 12 years with his boys and worship with them. Uh, he and Christine are still planning to remain here at Highland. Uh, but we are very grateful for the work that Matt has done uh, at this church for our body and for the kingdom. Would you please join me in thanking Matt for 12 years of service? I don't see him, but he's still in the back doing good work. Um, We are grateful for uh, him and the work he's done. Please hear this benediction. May the God of peace dwell in your hearts richly. May the fruit of the Spirit shine in your lives. Confess your sins one to another and experience the freedom and light of God. Go in peace. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The Lord liveth, and blessed be the rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted.